Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. What's up, everybody? This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. Coming at you our Wednesday night. Little round table, I guess if it's a round table, just for two people. I'm Anthony Cazenza, joined by John Sheeran. He's got Randall behind him, for those of you joining us live. Randall's joining us too. John, hi, yeah, yeah, my friend. Uh, how are you hanging in there this week? This was a, this has been a rough first few days to cover the Cincinnati Bengals. How, how are you holding up? It has been rough, but we have a request from YouTuber Brian Creamer, and he's asking if we aren't eating kettle brand potato chips at the open. I cry foul. So, Anthony, please talk for the next 10 seconds because I'll be right back. <laughs> I, by the way, when I saw Carlos Dunlap eating kettle chips, I'm like, dude, that is my jam. I love kettle chips. I don't know if, if that's like a thing around the U.S., but I love kettle chips. The ridged ones with the salt and cracked pepper, those are my jam. The hall, Is that what you got? What is it? Oh, barbecue? No, no, good I'm, I'm, I'm a barbecue guy, definitely, okay. for sure. Barbecue's, barbecue's good. We'll have, to get, we'll have to get in touch with the kettle the kettle chips company to see if they'll uh, they'll sponsor it alongside Gantz. That'd be a great tailgate, by the way. Two great tailgate sponsors right there. You got your chips and you got your beer, Gantz, and you got your kettle chips. So someone get kettle chips on the line and have them, have them get in touch with us. The, the classic single 30-year-old diet right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And before leading up to that is the ramen ramen noodles diet, right? Ramen noodles mm-hmm. and, and cheap beer. But hey, uh good to have you good to have you here, John. I I know we've got a lot to talk to tonight, both in terms of what happened Sunday, the fallout from it. Uh we've got a little stat of the week to talk about this week, and then of course. Uh, we've got the Browns game, the second already, week seven, and we're already talking about the second Browns game for the Cincinnati Bengals, second edition of the Battle of Ohio. Good to have everybody with us. We're going to uh, get get going here in just a minute. I just want to remind everybody, in case you're new to these parts, we do this longer show every Wednesday night from the Orange and Black Insider. We do a Monday news jump where we get you going through headlines for the Bengals and the NFL to start your week. Then we've got this one on Wednesday night. We do listener questions live almost every Friday. And then, of course, we've got our pregame show by Narragansett Beer before kickoff. And then we do a postgame show after the game is over. So join us for all of that, as well as the great stuff from Ace and Zim on New Stripe City and Orange is the New Black and Matt Minnick in his film breakdowns on Chalk Talk. All of that is available on really wherever you get your audio podcasts, as well as our YouTube channel. Check out John's left shoulder. He's got the the Orange and Black Insider YouTube logo. Click that and subscribe so you know when we're taking the air, when new material is available, all of that good stuff. Oh, John, do we have to relive? (laughs) Do we have to relive what happened Sunday? Um, 
I guess immediate, just kind of macro thoughts of this thing. Uh, You know, I I know this was not a game that a lot of people thought the Bengals would win, but you get up 21 on a pretty good team on their home turf, and really that was the formula that the Bengals needed to utilize to come out with a win, and it looked like they were going to do it, but they got in their own way. It, it was it was surreal, but I mean I, I think about it this way: like for one, if there's any quarterback that's going to come back from a 21 point deficit, beat specifically the Bengals, it's going to be Philip Rivers. It's kind of just what he does, and it's spectacular in some ways that a game involving Philip Rivers had a quarterback throw a game ceiling interception, but only this time it wasn't Philip Rivers. And we can talk about that <laughs> later. But like how this started, it, like you said, it could not be better. Like the very first play from scrimmage, it was like a little screen pass or something for the Colts. And it went for like 20 yards. The running back had like 10 yards after contact. You're thinking this is just how it's going to be. The Colts are going to dink and dunk the Bengals defense. Death by a thousand paper cuts. They're going to score too many points for the Bengals offense to possibly match. Second play, you know, the, Jack Doyle just fumbles on his own. And the newest Bengals, Xavier Williams, who started this game over a defensive tackle that we're going to talk about later, he recovers it. Bengals score three consecutive touchdowns on their next three drives. The Coles offense looks completely anemic. And for some reason, a, a light bulb went on for Frank Reich saying, hey, we don't need to run the ball against this defense. We can just throw the ball and have the most success on third down for any offense in the entire week six in the, in the NFL. Like when you see how vast, vastly different the first quarter and the second different second quarter was for both teams, it's like you can almost throw that whole first half out of the window. At that point, it was a 24-21 game. The Colts were up by three. The better team was winning. The the better coach team was winning at home. That's kind of when the game really started because things started to kind of level out. And after that, the Bengals only scored three points on offense, and the defense continued to have struggles just rushing rivers and just staying in their zones for seven to eight guys back there and just being completely dissected by a quarterback that was playing very badly up into this game. So I think at the end of the day, with everything that happened and how this game turned out, it was just it, the difference was which coaching staff kind of got their teams in the right positions at the right time. You know, Frank Reich, Matt Eberflewis, maybe the best offensive play caller, defensive play caller combination in the entire league. They got their team right when it counted. And unfortunately for the Bengals, they blew a giant lead that they're probably never going to see again this year. You're the Cincinnati Bengals. You come into this game, pretty big underdogs. You have to realize that Phillip Rivers, to your point and what you mentioned, John, Phillip Rivers has not been playing anywhere near his best football to to that up until that week coming into that. And it, what Indianapolis wanted to do was have a controlled passing game and run the football with their, their rookie, Jonathan Taylor, because the Bengals have struggled against the run. All of a sudden, they get gifted calls. They get gifted I, – I, I still kind of thought that Jack Doyle fumble at the beginning was like, was that a fumble? Was it a catch? It's kind of like what they ruled on the field was probably going to be what they ended up ruling overall, right? It was just Mm -hmm. kind of like, eh. So you're kind of gifted these opportunities. And then you're the Bengals who have struggled to capitalize off of turnovers this entire season. And then they're scoring touchdowns. First quarter, 21 to nothing. Second quarter, the... The, the game gets flipped on its head. The score goes 21-3 in favor of the Colts. So Bengals only have that 24-21 lead at half, and you're going, what the hell just happened in this game? So, you know, I I, I agree with you there, and there's a lot of stuff. We're going to talk some Zach Taylor here, but there there was just a lot of things that you, you, you kind of felt were going the Bengals' way, and somehow they just kept finding ways to not 
not get out of their own way. And they didn't really commit a ton of penalties. I think it was six per team, but the ones that the Bengals committed ended up being drive killers, particularly on the offensive line. Randy Bullock having an outstanding statistical year, but the two kicks, the only two kicks he's missed in <laughs> six games have been absolutely critical, critical kicks. He nails a 55-yarder in the game, John, and then 47-yarder, one he's been routinely making this year, in late in the fourth quarter, doink. And I guess that's where we can go next is a little bit of the um, the play calling. And you touched on it a little bit. And, and I think the, the most egregious, at least for me, was in that fourth quarter, the play leading up to that missed field goal. And you had a great tweet, by the way, about that, about the missed field goal. Uh Zach Taylor decides not only to call a fullback dive, but he calls it to a player who has not carried the ball since week seven or week six of last year in Samaj P. Ryan. And a guy who doesn't play fullback. I mean, he's a running back. He's a north south. He's a big guy. He's a running. He's a he's a north south guy, but he's not a fullback. So he calls a play to a guy who hasn't carried the ball in a year and in a, in a regular season game in a year. And then you call it from a position in which he does not normally play. And then it's not like you lost a bunch of yardage. You just didn't gain anything. So what do you do instead of going for it, going for the gusto at, at, like you did in the beginning of the game and really taking that lead, you settle for the field goal and ev- inevitably Bullock misses it. That's one of many issues and I'm, that I just really had to take Taylor to task for this week. I think we need to go back to, to the scenario here. The Colts had just scored a Jack Doyle, Doyle touchdown, which some people questioned the, the legitimacy of it, but whatever. The Bengals were now um, down, like I think like four points or whatever, and they had like a, a terrible drive that included an Alex Trevin false start. Redman gets beat by DeForest Buckner for a sack. Kevin Huber has his worst punt in recent memory. It went only like 28 net yards. Colts have the ball. Now they're up by a point. They're at, it's twenty-eight to twenty-seven now. Colts have the ball, and the second play of that drive, like Jesse Bates has a miraculous interception. If that doesn't happen, the Colts probably score a touchdown there. Like their mm-hmm. offense is clicking in all, on all cylinders. The game is going to be put out of reach had not Jesse Bates made a, a Herculean superhuman type play. <laughs> and right. that's that—that's the embodiment of what Jesse Bates has been to this defense. He's the clear MVP of that side of the ball. And he's making a case for defensive player of the year because of it. But if that doesn't happen, the Colts are probably going to put the Bengals away at that point. Jesse Bates gifted them light or life at, at, at that point in the game. So what happens after that? You know, Burrow and the Bengals drive down to the field. They have a great third down conversion to AJ Green down the down the sideline. Look like a vintage Andy Dalton, the AJ Green type moment there on like a 10 yard out. Green outstretches his hands, gets two feet down, and you have all that going for you. Now it's third and one, like you said. Like Fullback dives don't work. <laughs> it, it, it's it's simple, but it, it's it's true. Like they just don't work. And the fact that you already had Joe Burrow successfully do a QB sneak at the goal line, I don't know how one of those two plays wasn't what what that was. And I understand the fact that Bullock made the fifty five yarder and that gave them trust for him to hit that. But even if Bullock makes that field goal, it's what thirty to twenty eight. You have to assume the Colts are going to score that on the next drive, anyways. So they're going to probably take the lead in the next drive, and then you're asking your your offense to score down the next drive. If you have one yard to go 
I don't know how you don't give it to either Mixon or, or just put the ball in Joe Burrow's hands. Like I, I don't disagree with the fact that they believe that they was gonna, that Bullock was going to make that field goal. I don't doubt them for their trust in that, even if he didn't. But you had to score a touchdown regardless to have a, a comfortable chance of winning the game, and that was the best chance to do that. And it, it seemed like right when they made that decision, even if Bullock made the field goal, they were probably going to lose the game. I, I just didn't understand it. I mean, quite quite frankly, I didn't understand that sequence of sequence of events. And there were other instances, though, John, that I was kind of impressed with some of Zach Taylor's play calling. There was an instance where Zach Taylor, uh, there's I think two at least two instances where he had both Mixon and Geo in the backfield at the same time. A thing that we have been asking for for a long time. Now, one time Giovanni Bernard ended up in pass pro. He picked up a blitzer, but in another it, earlier in the game when they had both those guys in, guess what happened? I think it was like a 24 yard play to Tyler Boyd that ended up setting up a touchdown. And so there's there's those elements where you go, there it is. There were some of some successful jet sweeps. Um, Tyler Boyd had one also for 20 plus yards, I believe on, on one of those. So, I mean, there were some elements where you go, there it is. That's, that's what we've been looking for. There it is. And then it's just it like everything else on this team and everybody else on this team, wh- when the game gets tight and when the moment gets really stressful, it's, it's panic mode and it's, mm-hmm. uh, uh, let's just do that. And what happens inevitably when you don't have that serenity in that moment you end up choking. And unfortunately that's, that's kind of the story a little bit of what happened this Sunday. I think. I mean, that that's literally the biggest difference. We can talk all the time about, you know, the, the cool and creative things that Taylor's doing in parts of the game. And I think he does deserve credit for that. But at the end of the day, you have three wins to show for it. And most of those losses of those 18 losses are in close situations. It's not, we've said it before earlier in the season when they kept happening at this point, it's not a coincidence. It's just the trend. It's just how they lose. They find new ways to lose in these similar situations because Zach Taylor just can't put it all together when it counts. I think you hit the nail on the head there. One big positive, and we're going to talk more about Taylor and uh, some other issues going on with the Cincinnati Bengals in just a second. But one of the bright spots of the game were the duo, the wide receiver duo, and the production from A.J. Green and T. Higgins. A.J. Green was 94, 96 yards, something like that. Um, And T. Higgins had his first career 100-yard game, 125 yards. I mean, I I think I counted – I'd have to go back and look, but it, I mean, if you count those two plus Boyd in the passing game, you've got quite a bit of yards and quite a bit of production out of those guys, which is great to see. T Higgins is emerging as probably the go-to guy on this team right now, but is this, was this an, an instance, especially in the matter of green, was this an instance where you see this becoming a trend going forward and potentially leading to more wins? Or do you kind of see that this was, green playing kind of pissed off for a lack of better words based on what happened the week before i think that definitely had a factor into it it's not like green had the, the greatest matchup like xavier were xavier rose the the colts cornerback has been playing really well this season his first season in indianapolis but i mean green literally just looked like his old vintage self you know it didn't look like he was playing hurt didn't look like he was dealing with a hamstring issue it looked like he was being fueled by everything that happened in that week and he looked like the green that we expected this season with higgins I think this is the performance that we need to see from him because last week against the Ravens, when Tyler Boy was shut down by Marlon Humphrey in the slot, they didn't have Higgins creating or just making any explosive plays in his routes. 
And unfortunately, the passing game stalled because they couldn't rely on Boyd. Boyd has been really good this season when he's had that good matchup in the slot. When he hasn't, it, it's it's been up to T. Higgins to kind of stretch the field and create these explosive plays. And this is the first week that we saw him kind of take that mantle and Tyler Boyd in more of a, a complimentary, role, complimentary role in the slot. So it was great to see Higgins and Burrow finally connect on a deep ball. That was like the 10th time that Burrow has targeted Higgins 20 yards down the field. He got separation on like a little, little double move because the cornerback tried to bite on a little underneath route and a good throw by Burrow. Great run after the catch by Higgins. That was great to see them kind of set up the rest of the offense with that explosive deep play. And I mean, yeah, the first quarter, it featured um, not technically the first quarter because it leaked into the second quarter a little bit, but 21 points is no joke. That was the best well-functioning offense that we've seen from any Bengals offense in like the last two years. So that was great to see, but it, it makes sense because you had three receivers now working on all cylinders and working against all levels of the defense and Burrow being as accurate as he has been this season. It's it, it's encouraging, but I mean, you still had Burrow. He, he ran the one touchdown and he still had the goose egg in the passing touchdown column. But uh, look, I mean, it's encouraging to see. I've seen a lot of growth from T Higgins week to week. And, you know, there's there was a couple of drops early in in the season. And then now as he's gotten more reps, more time, more targets, he seems to be gaining a, a bit more consistency. And I have to eat crow a little bit because I was all over Michael Pittman in the draft. And Michael Pittman didn't even suit up this week, whereas T. Higgins balled out and had 125 yards. And, you know, Pittman went, went the pick after Higgins. So, and I like T. Higgins, by the way, going into the draft. I really did. I just was a little bit more on the Pittman train. But hey, I mean, Higgins is is being a very productive player for the for this team, and he looks to be the next great eighty five guy wearing eighty five there. And we've got more on him in just a little bit for in a in a stat of the week. But you know, the green thing, I I just I don't really know what to make of it. I like to think that. This is a sign going forward, especially if they end up keeping him past the trade deadline. I'd like to think that this was something that bodes well and maybe gives Burrow even more confidence. And, um, you know, there still is a separation issue among some of these receivers, but at least this week they were making the contested catches. And like you said, Green doing so against Xavier Rhodes, who's having a great year. That that really showed me something. That really showed me something. Yeah, and I think... It is going to take a lot for Green to make the case, at least in the Bengals' eyes, that he deserves to be back and he's worthy of being back at the price that he thinks he values himself at. At this point, like, I mean, we're going to talk about the game coming up, but it doesn't look like the Bengals are going to have a lot more wins or a lot more opportunities for wins before the trade deadline. If Green has performances similar to this leading up to that, I think at best it just makes his case for why a team should trade a decent draft pick for him. Like at the end of the day, he's going to be 33 next year. And the first five weeks existed just as much as this last week. And the Bengals are probably going to think that the green going forward is going to be similar to the one they saw before this week than the one they saw this week. Performances like this help. It helps his current value to a team that probably needs him more than the Bengals do. But in terms of keeping him around, it's going to take so much more than this for the Bengals to, to probably convince themselves that he's worth the capital that will be needed to bring him back. Yeah, and after the twenty-one point let up of the of the lead there, I mean, you could you could point to the offense being a reason. I mean, really, since after those first three touchdowns, six points the rest of the way, right? I mean, that's that's not going to do it. But uh, you know, 
I, I, I look at the defense, John, and the game plan there was uh, when you had that big lead, it was like zone coverage, but then you weren't even blitzing and getting pressure with anybody. The defensive line is a mess, and I know we're going to segue here in just a second on some of those issues, but like you said, Xavier Williams and Amani Bledsoe getting more snaps on the defensive line than Carlos Dunlap and Geno Atkins in this one. I mean, at some point, you got to kind of see what you're doing there, maybe mix up a blitz in there, and it, they just really weren't doing that and were unable to get pressure on a very, very immobile Phillip Rivers. Like, the plan was clear. It was not something that any of us really expected. Like, we were on the pregame show, and we were like, you know, Xavier Williams – and, you know, he's going to get some snaps, but he's not going to like out snap Gino or anything. And that's exactly what he did. He was starting at three tech next to Christian Covington at defensive tackle. And Bledsoe was starting at defensive end over Carlos Dunlap because Sam Hubbard was out for the for the first time this season. And when they were on third down, that was when Gino and Dunlap came in and Bledsoe was being moved to where Hubbard usually is that like defensive tackle on on those sub packages. And against the run, again, like they were really good aside from a couple of explosive plays from them, but they, they held their own there. And I think Williams did fine. But like at the end of the day, you're going up against one of the best offensive lines and a quarterback that ma- maneuvers and manipulates po- pockets better than most other quarterbacks. It's a bad combination when half your defensive line is Amani Bledsoe and Xavier Williams. Like those guys are just on a on an average basis, not going to rush the passer as effectively as more proven guys in Geno and Dunlap. It's, it's just not going to work. Like I, that was the plan going in and they stuck to it to their credit, but it didn't work. They don't have the results to back it up. And that, that kind of feeds into the, the frustrations that we've now heard from Gino and Dunlap. Like this is the plan, but we don't understand why it's the plan. These guys have accolades and history and production behind their names. They're, they're not just guys that are just on the, the wrong side of 30. Now they're still the better options at those positions. And if this game didn't prove that, then I'm not sure what will. The interesting, I'm trying to find the, the article here, but basically there is, a, a, you know, a, a report out there that Al Golden, the linebackers coach, is kind of in charge of some of the blitz packages or pressure packages and third down packages, which is interesting. I guess some teams do that, not a lot, but uh, Lou Anarumo has decided to give the linebackers coach that mantle. And you would think, to your point, John, you would think that, you know, you would maybe not have Xavier, Xavier Williams and Amani Bledsoe at the same time. Maybe you'd have one with an Atkins. Maybe you'd have one with a Dunlap and a Lawson. And it just, it seems counterintuitive to 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 make that rotation and, count, and uh, against rationale to have that rotation going up against this Colts defense this week. Yeah, and like the plan in theory would work if you had the talent around Geno and Dunlap. But right now, Sam Hubbard, DJ Reader, Mike Daniels during that game, they were all on injured reserve. They didn't have the complementary talent to do this with Geno and Dunlap. Like the plan, I guess, going in was to reserve at the very least Geno for the rest of the season so he can be more fresh as the season goes on. That can't, that's not a viable plan anymore. You need Geno Hackens out there for as many snaps as possible because he's your best option. Like, in theory, having other guys take those snaps for him would work if the guys taking those snaps were actually good players and not limited players like Xavier Williams and Amani Bledsoe. So the plan in theory works, but this is an NFL, this is the coach, this is an NFL coaching staff here. We have to trust that they're making actual NFL decisions, and unfortunately, they're not. They're going by the book when they need to adapt with the personnel that, that they have. 
Well, it's creating some drama. We'll talk about that in just a second. But before we do, I just want to remind everybody to get this show on your favorite audio streaming platform how you can and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We've got a lot of different content coming up. So check it out. If you're new to this program, thanks for checking us out. Leave us a review on your favorite audio streaming platform and we appreciate your support. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. So let's just let's just dive full into it. You know, there was a report from Cincinnati.com's Tyler Dragon that Geno Atkins and Carl Stunlap have expressed clear internal displeasure about the coaching decisions to basically relegate them as sub package players. Dunlap at the very least made that external, not only the the week before when he was complaining to the media that he was now a rotational guy, but then he went on Instagram live and explained why he was frustrated why he feels this way because of who he is as a competitor. He's a football player. Like these guys have emotions too. But I mean, the first year of Zach Taylor, it was two and 14. We, we were speculating if there were any type of internal d- disputes and, and struggles with what Taylor's trying to institute into this team. But at the end of the day, it was just his first year. He was thrown into this thing, whatever he's, he's in year two now. And the results still aren't matching up to the words that are coming out of his mouth, right? The, the, the dialogue, the message hasn't changed and neither has the results to show for it. So now we're starting to see actual tangible anger and frustration with veterans on this team, veterans that have been here long before Zach Taylor has gotten here. And some people have pointed out that that's a common theme here is that most of the guys, Darius Phillips, Auden Tate, Sean Williams, um, now Gino and Dunlap, all guys that have been here before Zach Taylor I, I guess the question is, like, we know this is real, but how much weight do we really put on this for the rest of the season? And do we see it foresee it ever getting better for the rest of the season? I feel like every time I talk about this, I talk out of both sides of my mouth because I just I, I don't I don't have a clear grasp on this. So part of me, John says, if you look at the list dating back to last year, all Marvin guys. All Marvin guys. Now, maybe it's because rookies and second-year guys, especially some of these second-year guys who were injured for most or all of last year, don't feel the the right, that they have the right to speak out against the coach if they have certain feelings at at this point in their career. Um, So you kind of say, are these guys just kind of bitter because the new coach came in and says, I don't really have much use for you? And that kind of plays into Zach Taylor's corner, but – what we also just talked about, how do you rationalize to your team, whether you're Lou Anarumo, Al Golden, or Zach Taylor, how do you rationalize to your team that you are giving your team the best chance to win with Geno Atkins and Carlos Dunlap, although they haven't been showing much when they have played this year, you know those guys' resumes. How do you rationalize to your team that Amani Bledsoe, Xavier Williams getting significant more, significantly more snaps than those two gives your team a better chance to win, especially when you just gave up a 21-point lead and lost a game you should have won. So that's that's kind of where I have trouble processing all of this. Then you've got the 111-1 record in close game, one-score games that Zach Taylor has. 
And you've got a Bengals team that, yes, does date back to Marvin Lewis, but 0-16-1 in their last 17 road games. How, how do you spin that? I, I, I mean, I, I just – I don't – I don't – I don't know how you do that. It's especially my main point with this was the Gino and Dunlap getting less snaps than some of those other guys. I, I don't know if that's just to prove a point. I don't know if you're in evaluation roster evaluation mode and that's what's going on. But if I'm sitting in that locker room and it, Tyler Dragon said it in the Cincinnati Inquirer article, I'm going, what what the hell's going on? Why, why aren't these guys getting more snaps? If, if we're really truly trying to win right now, why aren't these guys getting more snaps? I don't get it. Well, that that is something that that was pointed out, according to Dragon. It wasn't just Dunlap and Atkins expressing frustration. It was other players confused by it. Like, like there's a clear disconnect on what the proper plan is here and the coaching staff for going with Thurway. And while there probably is communication with the players, there isn't an agreement with them. And to to your previous point, I think Andre Prada on Twitter said it perfectly. Like, there's no way Drew Sample is going to complain about getting playing time, even if he is one of Taylor's guys. Like, I think it's it's more correlation rather than causation rather for who is making these complaints because the majority of this roster was brought in before Zach Taylor was hired. And the most of the new additions from this year, I mean, they're not really playing like Trey Waynes is on IR DJ readers on IR. Um, like Mike Thomas is, can't really complain. He's like a fourth or third string receiver. LaShawn Sims is getting rotational snaps at quarterback. Most of the guys that were brought in this year, they're either rookies finding their way or they're actually playing if, they, if they're able to play. So for the most part, yeah, the, the guys that Taylor brought in, they have no reason to complain. And because most of the guys that are still major contributors were brought in before 2019. So I don't really see that, that causation factor there at, at that point. But I mean, you're right. Like the results don't back up the message, and the message hasn't changed. The stick is getting old. Like I think it's it, it, it took a while for Marvin Lewis, to, I guess, annoy us at the at the at the microphone when it, during his press conferences. I think this week was the first time where it's like, okay, the the, the, the it's just dried up. It's it's played out the same thing. Like it's going to come to us. We just got to keep working at it. Like what the the same things that Taylor says in the microphone is starting to feel a little bit dry and stale, like like it did in the late days of Marvin Lewis. I, I don't know what else he is supposed to say, um, but you're right. It, it, it's it's broken record time, right? Um, the one thing I can say in defense of his decision with Gino or whoever's decision it is with Gino is, you know, if they are trying to ease him back from whatever injury he had, the shoulder issue, whatever specifically that was, then I understand getting him on a pitch count, but I still don't understand – how you're saying you're get how you can sit there with a straight face and say I'm I'm giving my chance my team the best chance to win by having a practice squad call up and a street free agent that just joined us take more snaps in a game than two guys one of which is prob- a probable Hall of Famer in Geno Atkins and when you give up that kind of lead you, you're you're supposed to be taken seriously I just I don't understand that one so. You know, John, I just I look at this and there are a number of players now that have openly asked or sort of asked for trades. There are guys that have voiced displeasure and even though they are all Marvin guys, I don't I don't know who's who's running the ship and I don't know what's going on in that locker room. I, th- I mean, a lot of people are going to ask us like are there going to be trades that are going to happen? And the Bengals consistent constant message specifically from Duke Tobin is that our job is to not make other teams better. Well, if these guys are pretty much 100% on the way out after this year, what's the difference between just offloading a guy now and getting an actual asset 
in return as quick as possible. If we know that Carlos Dunlap and probably Geno Atkins are not going to be on this team in 2021, what, what is the harm of actually getting something in return if you can get something in return? Now, the value of those guys couldn't be any lower at this point because Dunlap is in his usual lull before he sometimes explodes with production. But if he's not going to play more than 30 snaps a game, it's not like he, we're going to see a second half resurgence like we did last season. And Geno Atkins is also all, just only getting up there in age and he hasn't had a sack all season. So the, the value couldn't be lower. But also, like if we know these guys are going to be gone, what is the harm in at least trying to see what you can get in return? Like I, you, at the end of the day, they're going to be they're going to be going to other players, and you're going to be consciously not retaining them, or you're going to be cutting them, and those players are not going to retire. They're going to go to another team, and they're going to feasibly make that team better. So at the end of the day, you're failing in that objective. At least in this method, you can at least get something in return to make your team better. I, I don't. I don't disagree with you there and uh you know i don't know if it's fire sale time per se but i mean that there is logic in in what you say there i, I just i i i just struggle to i, I struggle to to believe that this i, I there, there are signs here john that tell me that this this coaching staff is still in roster evaluation mode and that's why there are certain guys getting more snaps than others. That's why you have John Ross, healthy scratch, Auden Tate, healthy scratch. They're they're almost still in roster evaluation mode, but they're telling us that they're trying to win now. And they're just signs here that just they do not point to that. And to to your to your comment there about why not trade these guys, if that's they need to decide who they are at this at this point. They need to decide who they are because this team could be a three-two and one team. This could, team could be a four-one and one team right now if they actually knew how to close games, and they they don't. So you either are saying, okay, we're packing up our bags, we're shipping some of these guys out, and maybe not all of them, but some of them, and we're getting what we can to build for next year and beyond, or we're we're still trying to win, and we think we're close. We think we're close, and we just got to find a way. And these veteran guys are going to help you do that. And we, said the, and we said the same thing last year in regards to that. So how about that for lack of progress? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So not, not the greatest, uh, not the greatest week in terms of Cincinnati Bengals, their players and some things to, um, there's some things that have been said or rumored actually really the last couple of weeks now with some of their star players and to Dunlap's credit, he kind of made a big thing about going on Instagram live. And I think a lot of people were maybe wondering if he was going to blast the team, the coaches, ownership, whatever. And he did pretty much the exact opposite and just kind of said, I just need to, I need to communicate better. I think that was code though, that there's both sides needed to communicate better. That's kind of how I took it. And, um, you know, he could have he could have gone the low road with that, and he did not, John. So for those who did or did not watch that, um, that's that's kind of what I took out of that. Yeah, and I think for some, for something that was announced, like he said three hours before, I'm going to go on live on Instagram. Like, well, nothing incredibly juicy was going to come out of that. It was just him airing out some mild thoughts about the whole process. Like at the end of the day. He's still here. He wasn't going to get traded at that point. He wasn't going to declare a trade. Like those things don't happen in situations like that. Those things kind of just pop up out of nowhere when it's not premeditated like that. So um, kudos to Dunlap for you know just getting that stuff off his off his chest. And I mean, 
at this point, the relationship looks pretty torn for, for at least the long-term future beyond 2020. But at the end of the day, maybe he can do some things to either up his trade value or just make the defense better. So one way or another, something good has to come out of that. If, if it were to be positive. Do you, do you think going back quickly and we'll, we'll wrap up this segment in a sec, but do you think that, the record I told you about Zach Taylor, the one 11 and one in one score games. Do you think that's ever, is that at this point, are we at, that is who he is. And that is who he is as, as this head coach. Or are we at the point where we still got to wait and see there's, they still tease us so much and they may be close. Like he says, what's your gut feeling on that? I don't know off the top of my head how many close games Hugh Jackson lost for the Browns, but they only gave him two and a half seasons to try to figure it out. And I think we all know how that how he is viewed as a head coach now. Like at the end of the day, like if, if you it the st- the numbers say that that specific stat regresses in the other way because on average most coaches are pretty decent, and unfortunately Zach Taylor has shown nothing in regards to the opposite. Whereas he's just a guy that's probably in over his head. He has some creative concepts to him. He can add value to the structure of an offense. I think he's shown at the very least of that. But in terms of putting all the responsibility on him and taking it on and, and leading these guys and trying to put them in the best positions where the game matters the most, he has yet to prove his worth. And that's where some of these wins are going to come out. Like Josh Fines just said, we should be like four and one and one or whatever. and be No. That logic doesn't make any sense when you actually watch it with your eyes. There were games that didn't turn out the way that you expected, but there were clear situations in those games where it could have turned done, done differently if you had made better decisions on your own. And luck for the other team or the refs had nothing to do with it. We've now seen this for the last one and a half years. There's enough to film, tape, numbers behind it to back it up. It has nothing to do with luck anymore. It's just him being incompetent. And the, only, and the only way it's going to change if he's, if he becomes a completely different person, it's hard to see that amount of growth now. That's where I get torn. You know, is it just this staff is inexperienced and that's where I'm torn. And I want, I want to believe in him. I want to believe in what he's trying to build. But at some point, not only are you finding creative ways to lose, I just to use an old adage, but John, we're also seeing guys that have been traditionally clutch in college. And I know college and NFL, there's a big leap there, but we're seeing some of the best players or better players in college that came from winning programs come here and the team is still finding ways to lose. And sometimes those guys contribute to those losses in big ways in the form of drops, interceptions, turnovers, not getting a turnover, that sort of thing. And it's almost like, okay, is that a contagious thing? From the from the coaching staff, you know, is it do they need to grow more, or is it a contagious thing to the roster? Kind of feels like the latter. <laughs> Sometimes it feels that way to me too, for sure. Well, we're going to move on and try and get to a positive aspect. It is a stat of the week. Uh, this is something I we got it from Next Gen Stats from the NFL. And they send us these uh, pretty much every week. And some of these are kind of like, oh, okay, that, that's kind of cool. Others are actually quite interesting. And I think this one was pretty interesting, John. Uh, regarding T. Higgins, a next-gen stat, he had a 9.9 yards after catch average. And granted, a lot of that was on that big bomb. But uh, 9.9 yards after catch average 
but only 1.9 yards per separation on average. So there are positives and negatives to this. The positives obviously are, hey, this the yards after catch number to me, John, work really well with Joe Burrow as your quarterback. You do those crossing routes, those drags, those intermediate routes where a guy, and with, with Burrow's accuracy, we've seen it already. With Burrow's accuracy, he hits him in stride. They're able to get some additional yardage right after the catch and not have to lean, you know, reach back for a ball or, you know, that sort of thing. So they're able to maximize the potential on a play, and we like to see that. We also, on the positive side, even though the lack of separation is there, you also have to like that Higgins is coming down with the ball, and it's happening more often now. He's coming down with the ball even though the the coverage is there. Uh, So I guess from a positive standpoint, that's kind of where I stand with this stat. Yeah, and to have more context to that, there have only there were only I think eight other receivers with a lower average uh, yards per, uh, separation per route than Higgins was. So one point nine is definitely on the low end of the spectrum. His expected yards after catch per reception was five and a half, so he was four point four yards per reception over expectation, which again had a lot to do with that sixty-seven yard bomb. But to your credit, to your point, there were a couple of good throws from Joe Burrow to Higgins in very contested situations and he finally came down with some of these things you know there were there were a couple of situations earlier on the season where there were there were drops or either you know a little bit underthrown balls so the, i think that throw over the middle comes to mind where he was double covered and there was a third guy closing in it was like a th- third or second and long conversion type situation and yeah that played into a lot of this also aj green to his credit only um 1.7 yards per per mm. uh 1.7 yards of separation per uh, route or catch or whatever so both guys you know almost 100 yards for green over 100 yards for higgins didn't create a lot of separation it's kind of been the theme for green this year but it ended up working out for this week i think it's also i look at this i look at i look at you know we've complained maybe green's lost a step and the thing is with higgins is we knew separation wasn't really his strong point as a prospect right. he had okay speed but he's got pretty great Pretty pretty solid strength for uh, the wide receiver position. Good size, really high points the ball well, and has a an excellent catch radius. That's kind of and it's it's like the Mike Williams effect. His predecessor at Clemson, same kind of guy, right? Big guy, physical guy, and can come down with the ball. Williams probably a little more physical than Higgins, but same kind of same kind of guy. And that is the strong point that you want in this offense. But I also wonder not only that we knew that about Higgins, but John, is this also a scheme thing with those drag routes, with those short routes where they're just not able to or offensive line issues as well? I mean, is this, does this, does a lack of separation also point to other facets, the game plan, the offensive line, that sort of thing? Yeah, to an extent at the end of the day, like, this is who can, this is who Higgins was at Clemson. He was just a big body guy that could outmuscle uh, cornerbacks at the catch point, and we're starting to see that slowly develop into his game. With Mike Williams, you know, it took a little bit for him to develop into the monster he is now, but now he's in year four and he's jump balling over guys, and he has a quarterback that can take advantage of that. Higgins is only twenty one years old. We got we got to remember that he's he's a boy playing with men out there, and he, he's coming into his own. You know, it's it's a fantastic class for receivers. Justin Jefferson is blowing everybody out of the water. He's like a first-team all-pro candidate right now. He's got oh, almost 600 yards through six games. T. Higgins is quietly third amongst rookies in receiving yards for, for receivers. So he's he's coming into his own, too. And this was a good game to really get him on the map so far. But, I mean, his 
targets per game and his, his receptions per game has been consistent, but he finally had that one explosive play that really took him to the next level. Now he's entering that conversation with these other great receivers in this class. Yeah. And remember these two guys ended up, uh, and I think this maybe partially played into the Bengals draft drafting, probably not a big part, but maybe it was in the back of their minds when they drafted T Higgins that Burrow and Higgins worked out together in Southern California with Jordan Palmer for a, a couple of weeks. And they built a little bit of a rapport through all these practices and drills that they did there. And, you know, you're starting to kind of see the fruits of that as well as what semblance of training camp they had start to kind of come to fruition here. And, you know, it's Higgins is one of those guys that they saw some things uh, through limited snaps the first couple of weeks. And then really since the Eagles game, they kind of said, we got to, we got to get this guy out here more and we got to get him the ball. And, um, it's it's paid off for him. It's paid off for him, and I I think a great point too about his age. To be honest, that that kind of slipped my mind. I knew obviously he was a young guy being a rookie, but it's kind of the Michael Jordan thing, right? I mean, he came out pretty young. So uh, yeah, interesting stat of the week regarding T Higgins, and one that that yeah points out maybe maybe a flaw in his game, but also points out a lot of positives going forward for him and the Bengals offense. John, shall we talk about the second battle of Ohio already in week seven? Crazy that the Bengals are playing them again already. But uh, what are your what are your feelings going into this one the second time around based on what we saw the first time? I was just talking to my one of my good friends who's a really good Browns fan or a really big Browns fan. And I, I was just saying to him, like, I mean, the Browns are four and two and they have like I don't know if it's if this is an all-time stat, but it's like the worst point differential for a team that's four and two of, in the history of the NFL. So, I, in, in my mind, like you look at you look at that team and where they're strong and where they're weak at, and it kind of feels like the 2013 Bengals a little bit, like a great all-around team, and like the one thing that could possibly hinder them is their quarterback. And when you know it, like that team was, I mean at least in like when when the Bengals were good with Andy Dalton like they still had trouble you know beating the Steelers beating the Steelers at all and you know they had some troubles with the Ravens too and i think it was either one of the, it was one of the years that they won the the, the 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 division that they only finished like 3 and 3 in the division and the Browns two losses this year are convincing losses to the Ravens and Steelers it kind of feels like they're on track to finish similar in terms of record like maybe like that 10 and 6 9 and 7 range but they're still having trouble with actual good teams and the good teams happen to be in the division. So the Browns are four and two and they should be feeling good about that, but they still have definite weaknesses. Unfortunately, we were kind of thinking this back in week two after the Browns got decimated by the Ravens. We're thinking, okay, this is going to be a game where the Bengals could definitely win. Bacon Mayfield did not start out the season very good against the Ravens. And of course we saw what happened in Thursday night. They blew the door off the Bengals defense. They ran wild on the run game with both Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt and Baker Mayfield had arguably the best game of his career ever since that game though, between weeks three and six, he is PFF's worst graded quarterback. But of course we just talked last week about how Phillip Rivers was playing terribly up until the Bengals game. And that's when he had his get right game. So to me, this is a game that on, on paper, the Bengals should have an easier time of, of winning compared to the first time that they played them. But also there's just consistent factors here. The Bengals defense is now a springboard for quarterbacks to get right and improve. And now there's a formula for the Browns to run all over the Bengals and do whatever they want in the passing game. And it, it, even if the Browns may be frauds in a sense, 
they still have a formula to beat the Bengals pretty easily. Yeah, a lot of it is the run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, play action, bootleg, big play, right? I mean, that's that's what they that's what Baker has thrived off of. And if you saw last last time they played on Thursday night, he did a lot of that, a lot of that. Part of me, John, especially with, and we're going to get to the injury report. We'll share that in just a second and some other news with the Cincinnati Bengals as it pertains to certain players. But part of me says, blitz the hell out of them. Because you're, William Jackson is playing very well at cornerback. You've got Mackenzie Alexander back. Jesse Bates is playing very well individually. And as we saw last week, they didn't get any pressure on Phillip Rivers, and he was able to find soft spots in the zone defenses that the Bengals were throwing at, at them. Uh, I, I think if you fluster Baker, he's he's definitely more mobile than Phillip Rivers, and that that presents some danger there if you don't wrap up, if you get some contact on him. But the other thing is, you know, William Jackson had a great day against T.Y. Hilton, by the way, last week. And T.Y. Hilton's a pretty decent receiver when he's right and healthy and has a good quarterback. But what what I'm getting at is, do you leave William Jackson on an island against OBJ, a guy he struggled pretty handily against last last Thursday night? And obviously OBJ is quite a bit more talented than T.Y. Hilton. Do you, do you leave him potentially more on the island? Jesse Bates out there a little bit and risk the blitz to try and make Baker beat you. Right. And like, like that, it's a good plan. And we're going to talk about William Jackson on the, on the injury report here. And there's some, there's some ways that you can at least try to slow Odo Beckham Jr. Down because unfortunately, whether it's with the giants or with the Browns, OBJ has really good games against the Bengals, despite some of their cornerbacks being healthy. Um, but yeah, like that, that, that has been a problem with them. You know, Darius Phillips for as good as he can, what he can do, on some of these deep balls with ball skills, he does have a tendency to get beat sometimes. You have a guy in Bates that can range from you know hash to hash or, or number to number from a, a single high alignment, and you're trying to figure out what can you do with Von Bell because when you put him up to the line of scrimmage in man cover situations, he can get lost like he did against the Colts, but in run defense and, and on short passes, he can close down and make some quality tackles. So I think you're still trying to find what works best with the secondary against a passing game in the Browns where there's a clear the discrepancy between what happens when they utilize play action and what happens when they don't utilize play action. When, when, when you, when you have Mayfield in just a straight dropback situation, he has the second lowest passer rating since that, since that, that week two game against the Bengals so from week three to week six, he has a pass rating of 73.6 in straight dropback situations with play action. That pass rating goes up to one Oh nine play action. Like you said, was the key for that Browns offense, that passing game to really, you know, destroy the Bengals secondary. And I think if I'm Kevin Stefanski, I'm just rolling that, that back out there until th- they beat me. So you're going to have Beckham on these vertical and deep over routes, and you potentially won't have William Jackson out there who's in concussion protocol. So you have LaShawn Sims or, or Darius Phillips or maybe even Tony Brown out there to try to handle him. It, it's, it's not looking great based off of what we saw earlier this season, but there is a formula to beat Mayfield. And I don't I like against the Steelers. He looked completely flustered, even when there wasn't that much of a pass rush from the Steelers. He was just making wrong reads and just not seeing defenders and just not going through, not just not just not making the right throws. And there were times where he just got bailed out by some yards of the cast situations, and he missed Beckham where he didn't trust Beckham in one-on-one coverage. When you put him in those situations, he just looks like a rattled, frightened quarterback. But when you have him scrambling out of the pocket, it doesn't really matter what you do from a secondary perspective. He is good r- r- throwing on the running and throwing o- OBJ against the Bengals. 
Here's the injury report. As John mentioned a couple times, William Jackson is in concussion protocol, and we'll we'll talk about who's on the injury report in just a second. I want to I want to update some folks on this though, um, and it, because these these guys aren't listed on this specific the Bengals portion of the injury report. On Wednesday, Mike Daniels was removed from IR and placed on the active roster. Uh, as we know this year, the injured reserve is a little bit more fluid than it normally is. Uh, players can kind of come off after being on it for just a handful of weeks, um, whereas that hasn't been the case before this year. So Mike Daniels is back on the active roster. Whether that means he will be available to play this week, I, I don't I don't know. Um, I don't think I, I don't I'm, I would not plan on him playing um, just based on conditioning and whatnot. Uh, it would be nice to see him and or Gino kind of get in there and, and either play together or spell each other, that sort of thing. But I don't know. But that is big news for the Bengals' defensive depth. Sam Hubbard, who was also on IR with an elbow injury, he was doing some rehab field work on Wednesday, as was Xavier Suofilo, who looks to be closer and closer to joining any thoughts on those three that I, and, or did I miss any, any of anything else on that front, John, before we get into these, uh, these that are listed. Yeah. So I think you're right about Daniels. They have a three week window to actually activate him. So it when whenever he starts practicing, you have to feel like he's probably going to play if not that week, then the week after that. So I I think you're, I think you hit the nail on the head though. He's probably not going to be practicing this week, which means he's not going to be playing. Um, yeah, Sam Hubbard has, I think, another two weeks to go on IR. Um, it's been a while. I, I mean, Suofilo was put on IR like sometime in September. So he... After the first I, game, I think, right? Yeah, so he's eligible to come back anytime. But I think, I, I want to say Taylor said a couple weeks ago, it wouldn't be until probably after the bye that they were comfortable with Suofilo coming back. So you still have Alex Redman at right guard for the next at least uh, two games because they have two more games until the bye. Yep. So here we've got, of course, the two gentlemen we talked about earlier, Atkins and Dunlap, getting some veteran rest. So I don't think there's anything to worry about there, especially with the limited snaps that we talked about. Uh, Not great news on the cornerback front. William Jackson going through concussion protocol this, uh, this week. Hopefully he gets cleared to play because that would be a devastating loss. He has played very well this year. Um, really the only game he has not played well is against OBJ that I can remember. Uh, Darius Phillips sick this week. Hopefully that means by the end of the week, he'll be feeling a little bit better. Uh, Joe Mixon dealing with that foot injury that kept him out briefly against Indianapolis. He did not practice as of Wednesday. And then you've got a veteran rest for green, a neck injury for Marcus Bailey. He was limited, as was Auden Tate, who missed last week with a shoulder injury. And then you've got Sean Williams, another one of those guys who kind of has passive-aggressively voiced displeasure with his role, um, limited with a hamstring injury. So the secondary pretty battered in coming into this week. That's a little worrisome. But – what let's let's talk just briefly, John, about Sean Williams. Uh, he is getting very very little looks on defense, and Von Bell continues to get more and more out there. And really, I was very excited about the Von Bell signing, but he there are he is being put in positions where he is being exploited in the pass game. I, I, do you see this kind of becoming a more rotational thing? I thought we would see both of these guys in there maybe at the same time in different packages, and we're not really seeing that too often. 
Yeah, and the first huge play from the Colts that was because they had Von Bell in a too high like shell type look, and they just targeted the receiver going up against Bell entering that deep zone, and that's the one situation where you don't want Von Bell, right? The, the, I think the plan always was to have Von Bell just be a pure box safety, and when when you want to go too high, you put you put Jesse Bates and Sean Williams back there. Williams only played like ten snaps in the game that Von Bell was clearly struggling in, and I'm. I, he got rotated more as the game went on, and Bell started struggling. But it, I, again, I think you're. I think you you got it though. Like we should probably see more Sean Williams if, if this is what they were trying to do with this defense. Because the more you have Von Bell in situations where he does not thrive, the more defenses can capitalize off it. And especially when you're going up against a quarterback like Phil Rivers, who knows these things because he's played in this league for a long time, it's it's a recipe for disaster. So I'm not exactly sure why they're limiting Williams there. I I, I he's on the injury report because. I'm pretty sure that's the same hamstring injury that took him out of capacity for the first three or four weeks of the season. So I guess he's still kind of dealing with it as is Marcus Bailey, who's on there with a neck injury that that has popped up on the injury report before. So I hope it's not because Williams is still kind of somewhat hurt because these situations where they're using Von Bell, I think Sean Williams would be better off uh, situated there. Long list of injuries for the Browns here. You can see those. Hey, look, the Bengals will be able to get some yards and some points against the Browns. They proved that in week two and on their home field, they, it, sh- they should be uh, very much the same. You've got Nick Chubb on that IR. So he he's not listed here, but he's not going to be playing. Um, you see uh, the two safeties, Harrison, he was full practice, but had dealing with a concussion. He was a guy they brought in because Grant Delpit was placed on IR. Carl Joseph, another guy was limited, another safety. And then of course, John, they have greedy Williams that they placed on, IR as well. So a battered secondary once again for the Browns and linebacker, a couple line, three linebackers on there. Uh, Tay Davis, Jacob Phillips, and Sion Taki Taki. I think Taki Taki is the only, um, the only starting linebacker of that group. Am I, am I wrong on that? Um, I think you're right there. I think Phillips is getting more playing time, but he's not exactly starter yet. Yeah. And then of course you've got their, their great offensive line. They've been playing very, very well. Uh, Wyatt Teller and JC Treader both dealing with some issues. And I I think both of those guys, I think definitely Treader. Treader was a guy that was on the injury report. I think the first time these two teams played, right? Um, So a lot of injuries there. And then you see Kareem Hunt also dealing with, with some ribs, but he should be fine. I would think so a long injury report, on there and of course the guy also on there john baker mayfield dealing with a chest injury a lot of people think that hindered him last week against the steelers and caused him to not play so well he was removed from that game all signs kind of point to him being ready to go this week but again i think in terms of keys to this game we can talk joe burrow we can talk Bengals offensive line we can talk all that i still think it's all about baker mayfield baker mayfield's four and one against the Bengals. He's got 12 touchdowns in those five games against the Bengals, touchdown passes. The Bengals got to figure out how to – Baker Mayfield's a different quarterback against the Bengals than he is against the entire rest of the league. So the Bengals need to figure out how how to make him look how he does on most other Sundays. Right, and I think it all goes back to just how how they beat them in week two or how the Browns beat them in week two. They destroyed them on play action, and – I don't know how if, if if it's me like I'm the Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb are the same person like they're both talented running backs that can still hurt you on those wide zone runs but like when they go in when they go into those looks it can either be a pass or a run it's up to 
the entire defense to stay alert and to watch the ball because there were just so many examples of Mayfield just buying time with his legs on these rollouts and just finding guys, Austin Hooper, Odo Beckham, Jarvis Landry down the field and getting easy first downs and completions and just having explosive play after explosive play. That was the difference and what made that such a good game for Mayfield. And for some reason, like the Browns just haven't had as much success against other defense trying defense is trying to do this. So whenever Mayfield is going into just a straight drop back situation, he just becomes a different quarterback. They have to take advantage of that. Like we said it last week, turning over, you know, rivers, whenever he threw the ball, that was key. It's going to be capitalizing on the mistakes that Baker Mayfield is going to make when he's in those straight drop back situations. You know, cream hunt is going to get his with or without Wyatt Teller. That's still an offensive line that can run all over a bank, a depleted Bengals defense line. that's still not going to have Mike Daniels back. That just is what it is, but they're not going to score 30 points on the ground. They're going to score 30 points again if Mayfield has the same type of game. So you're right, minimizing what Mayf- what little Mayfield can do and what schematic ways that he can beat you with, that's going to be the key to this. Quickly, before we, we do some predictions and get on out of here, I know we're going a tiny bit long, but I, I look at this one based on what we've talked about leading up to this week with the bit, the chatter around certain Bengals players, the chatter around Zach Taylor, the Bengals coming off of this massive collapse against the Colts and should be three wins, four wins at this point in the season. If like you said, better decisions were made, things went their way. They stepped up in the moments that they needed to step up. I, I don't think, personally that Zach Taylor is going to be removed from his job at any point in 2020. But I think if there is a breaking point for Bengals management, it may be if the Bengals get embarrassed on their home field against the Browns, how, how big is this game for Zach Taylor in his Bengals coaching career in your eyes? Like last week was huge in itself. That, that was an opportunity to do something that you've never done before, which is win on the road, but also just close out the game. You had a 21 point cushion and for whatever reason, you couldn't finish it. And there were obvious reasons as to why they came to be. And we can't really boil it down to one or two. But like that was such, such a huge game in his own. And now we're seeing now we're seeing the repercussions of what that loss has entailed. And that's internal dispute and guys just maybe just not seeing the vision here, you know. So now you're coming back home to the only place that you've ever won in your career, going up against a division rival. Like yeah, this game this game is huge. If they, if they get swept by the Browns again for like the second time in three years, it it turns from Zach Taylor potentially being on the hot seat to him officially being on the hot seat because I, I know that he hasn't had the health of the guys that he brought in, and that sucks. But we have yet to see any useful adjustments of whatever plan that they had going into this season. And one five and one is going to speak for itself. And after this week. They play the Titans. They have a bye, and they play the Steelers. They have some easy games after the bye, but it's just hard to see the season being turned around for the pot for the better and getting anything more than like three or four or five wins at this point. So this game is huge for what the Brown family will think of Zach Taylor. He's in a position where he can definitely win this game, but it's going to come down to him just being the better, just being a better coach than we've ever seen him before. The other facet is the only three wins Zach Taylor has against a Jacksonville team. I think that only has one win to this point, right this year. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, a, a god-awful Jets team, god-awful Jets team that is still god-awful this year, and a Browns team that packed it in at the very end of the season at home last year. Those are your wins, and they ended up, what, what were they, 6-10, and 10, I think, last year? So he, he has not beat a winning team 
I don't know that the Browns will end up with a winning record this year. It looks like they might because they are pretty competitive, but at this point they are four and two. And this is a, this is at this point in time, a quality opponent, a divisional opponent that you basically need to take care of. You need to take care of. So that being said, John, what do you, what do you predict this week score or things that ebbs and flows of the game, whatever, whatever you want to predict. This is your open floor, my friend. It, there's an avenue where they can use everything that's happened this week and feel it into beating a division rival, a team that is just clearly better than them. Like it's it's not often that the Bengals are just a little brother to the Browns, but that's been the case now for two or three years, even despite the Browns damning inconsistencies on their own part, there's a way that they can use all of this to manufacture a convincing win. But the fact that Mayfield has had success against this team, the fact that this is an opportunity for him to get back on track, and the fact that we've seen these two teams play this season, and the the Bengals in this case are only, I mean, this time they have less players, they have, they have even more injuries to deal with, and they're not going to have as many starters as they did back then. It's just hard for me to see a Bengals victory here. That's the reason why the Browns are a three and a half point favorite. I think it's going to be some somewhere in the in the single digits for a final score. Uh, point differential, but I, I, I just I would I would like to see something in terms of the Bengals proving me wrong here because right now they're giving me every reason to doubt them against a better opponent. This is a pivotal point in the Bengals season. I feel like we've said that a couple times already this year, but this is a pivotal point in the Bengals season. They're nearing the midpoint of their of their season. They have shown that they have been more competitive this year than last year, but they're still not closing out games. This is an opportunity. And this is, we, we talked about the importance of this one. Call me crazy, man. I think they win this one. I think they win it. I, uh, I, 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 something tells me, and I think they win it by a decent margin, maybe, maybe nine points, 10 points, something like that. I think, I, I think what, what's different this time around, you have that depleted secondary I mentioned of Cleveland, but this time around, A.J. Green is coming off a week where he's making plays and kind of feeling it. Tyler Boyd's still making a lot of plays, and now you've got a much more comfortable T. Higgins starting to emerge, and all of a sudden, the blitzes and the pressure that's usually there because there's maybe not as scary, it's not as scary to an opposing defense, all of a sudden, you got to Game plan for Higgins. You got a game plan for AJ Green starting to emerge. You got a game plan for Tyler Boyd. That pressure becomes a little less frequent coming at Joe Burrow, and he's able to make some more plays, put up a lot of yards, hopefully some points. So that's that's what I'm hoping for. I don't expect necessarily the run game to go wild for the Bengals. They still cannot seem to find any consistency running the football, but I do expect that Joe Burrow will be much more, much more, he'll feel a lot better physically on Monday than he did after that that Thursday night beating against the Browns. He took a lot of hits that game, and I, I don't see that happening again this week. Well, I would like to share that confidence, but Miles Garrett's still there, and unfortunately this Bengals offense line has not really improved since then. I mean, you can say what you want about the difference between Alex Redman and, and Fred Johnson, but that would get into a lot of semantics, and at the end of the day, neither of those two are good players. So, I mean, there's still Miles Garrett and the rest of that defensive line to deal with. And like Sheldon Richardson, Larry Ogunjobi, they're all still there. There's a chance for the Bengals to put up a lot of points here, or for at least in their case, a lot of points. Like the over-under, I think, is 50. And I think the Browns are going to definitely get into the high 20s. So it, it could end up being another situation where it's just a game of, of, of catch-up. But now the Bengals have the home field advantage here, and they have 
you know tape on what the Browns defense has done to them so far this year. But again, like I mean, it, it's possible that that you're right. Like they could utilize all this fuel and just come out with a convincing victory now that they have some of their offensive players kind of feeling themselves. But I mean that that defense line is still scary as hell against this offensive line, and it just might it handicap them from scoring enough points. It is, it is, and I see a lot of people that are disagreeing with me that's fine i i don't hey i'm not the guy that picks the Bengals to win every week on this show if you if you watch this show i am not that guy just something i got a little gut feeling this week guys i just feel like hey they're due um this this is a make or break type of i don't know if it's necessarily make or break but it feels kind of like that for zach taylor it just feels like a critical game in his coaching career and it feels like this is maybe one of those corner turning type of games we'll see i could be sitting here next week completely embarrassed but i'll say i'll say 30 21 Bengals. that's kind of where i'm sitting right now that's kind of where i'm sitting uh let's drop the mic and get out of here john what do you have for us before we hop on out of here just a quick shout out to my girlfriend's roommate's dad his name is john casea and he's a pretty big Bengals fan i met him over uh the summer when i helped um my girlfriend's roommate move in to their place. Um, and yeah, he's, he's a big fan. He's a big Bengals fan. He checks out the site. He actually texted um, uh, my, my girlfriend's roommate. Like, you know, I'm John better write about the defense and the, not stepping up, but he's been, he's been a consistent reader of the site and just want to give him a shout out. Okay. I like it. I want to do one more mini talking point for my mic drop, John, because a lot of people are mentioning it in the live chat and it is a little bit of news, I suppose, for the Cincinnati Bengals. Quentin Spain, the offensive guard who was released by the Bills, uh, uh, apparently, you know, I think a lot of us want the Bengals to sign him as a potential option option at left guard and then maybe Xavier Suofilo comes back takes over that right guard spot and then all of a sudden you're feeling a little bit better about that offensive line I kind of said I don't see it happening on Twitter today our good friend Bengals captain I know he's got maybe some inside scoops on some stuff due to some connections with the team he said that uh, he believes that the team is interested based on some things that he has heard I don't know if you have any thoughts on Quentin Spain the Bengals the fit and or if you think he's coming to the Bengals but we're getting a lot of comments on that the situation is that Quinn Spain was released for a reason, and the reason is he just wasn't—he hasn't been the same player that he was with the Tennessee Titans, and that's why he got a multi-year contract with the Bills. There's a reason why he's available now. He was hurt uh, early the season, and it apparently just didn't work out in Buffalo. Despite all of those reasons, the Bengals absolutely should sign Quinn Spain because they have no other option. They have no one even close to being as good as him on the roster, and that just kind of speaks to where they are right now. Yep, he would be a, a, I think, a marginal upgrade and maybe a, a a rental type of player. And you know, maybe if it it is a move that makes you think that hey, we are trying to fix things now. We are trying to win now, I guess. Uh, and it's one of the best options that's available out there on the open market. Um, otherwise, you'd probably have to make trades. And I don't know that people are going to be willing to part with quality starting offensive linemen at this point. But, um, you know, it is it is kind of the best of what's what's available right now. I, my understanding, John, is that he's pretty good in pass pro and not great in run blocking. Is that is that kind of the reputation that he's been had? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what he was in, in Tennessee. It's been more of a mixed bag in Buffalo, and I think the, injuries, the, the injury might have something to do with that. But yeah, he was the last time he was on the field. He came off the bench. He was just he was the backup with Buffalo, and he had 
really up and down performance against the Las Vegas Raiders. So again, if you bring him in, you're not. I wouldn't expect anything, you know, outstanding from him. He's not. He's not one of the better guards in the NFL like he used to be, but he's still again better than what they have right now. Even if he comes with this with his own deficiencies. Yep. Well, that's what I got to drop the mic. So we're gonna get on out of here. Thanks for everything, John. Uh, you got you got any big plans coming up for the weekend? I know you've been hitting the links the past couple. Uh, you, you hitting them again this weekend? Yeah, I might uh, I might chill out this weekend, you know, okay. to, to kind of prepare my brain for Sunday. <laughs> There's probably going to be a lot to prepare for. That's that's for sure. Well, thanks. Thanks for all of your contributions to this show, my friend. And thanks to all of you for listening, tuning in. You can get the Orange and Black Insider and all of the Cincy Jungle podcasts on your favorite audio streaming platform. And you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our podcasts are also streamed to Cincy Jungle's Facebook page, so you can catch them there either for the live recordings or afterward. We appreciate all the support. Thanks for tuning in. Have fun watching the Bengals against the Browns. Let's hope the Bengals get in the win column this week. We'll see you next time.